Good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, or depending on whatever you're, whenever you're listening. The one thing, to this. the one thing we do know is it's raining again. It's raining yet again. Um, but welcome to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig, and uh, we have a number of, of uh, spirits, I believe, on the. Well, it's kind of beverages generally. Beverages. Spirit, spiritus would be one of them. Have have to mix them up in to make wonderful cocktails. At the end of the program, so be sure to stick with us all the way through. Start, starting out in today's program, a, a most unusual find. Right. A most unusual find for us to discover that the, John Wayne, the, the, the Duke, as he was known universally by everyone who loved him, actually had not only had a great taste for spiritus liquor, including bourbon, but he actually had his own recipe. Yes. And uh, it lives on. And, and 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 the story of how that is so. What's the man's name? Chris Radomski. Okay, and it's called Duke Spirits. I got very excited um, when I got the press release about this um spirits company, Duke Spirits, and I never made the connection at first until I saw the name John Wayne and then I got very, very excited. <laughs> and then and then we got a sample of the bourbon and it was so excellent. So I immediately contacted uh, Duke Spirits and we now have Chris Radomsky. Radomsky on the line, who has been in this industry and the wine industry before that for a very long time, so he knows what he's doing. And we're going to have him give us the story behind this wonderful product and the fascinating company. And there's so many connections, aren't there? I'm glad to be on the air with you guys, and yes, there are. <laughs> Chris, tell me when this all started. How did... How did you end up dealing with John Wayne's family and so forth? Uh, well, it goes back almost uh, 11 years. I was living in Southern California, and a mutual friend introduced me to Ethan Wayne. And he's how old, Ethan Wayne? Um, well, Ethan's, I believe Ethan is around 55 years old currently. He's a very young 55. He's very, uh, you know, outdoor, outdoors man, uh, as you would expect. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, but when I met Ethan, um, we were introduced because of my involvement in the industry, and I wasn't quite sure, um, you know, why my our mutual friend suggested the introduction. Obviously, um, I was a big John Wayne fan and was very intrigued. And I got to know Ethan, and we had a, a couple lunches together, and he started telling me more about his uh, his life and uh, his uh, you know growing up being John Wayne's son. And uh, what was interesting was Ethan, being one of the youngest, um, actually lived with his father uh, for the first seventeen years of his life. Unfortunately, when until when his dad passed. But what it really meant to me, and when I start hearing the stories, was that you know Ethan was not only his son, but was in a sense, almost his personal assistant. He did and traveled everywhere with his father. You know, they would spend time on the movie sets in Durango, Mexico, where he made the majority of his movies, uh, Monument Valley, and also on his uh, boat, the Wild Goose, cruising up and down the Pacific coastline all the way from Alaska down to the coast of Baja, fishing, being with friends. So he saw a side of John Wayne, both from the side of being a son, but also... uh, you know, he learned a lot about the business. He learned a lot about, obviously, the way his father interacted with his colleagues and his friends and really had a good grasp. And again, I'm just quoting what Ethan had told me over the years of what his father was really like and who the man really was because obviously people saw things on television and on the press and no one really knew him unless they'd spent time around him. But Ethan had that insight. It was just incredible to me to sort of listen to it all. No, it's interesting. He t- he took the last he took the last name, which was a stage name, I guess. It's one of those one of those things where yeah. where, you, where you win dollars in a bar is if you can if you know John Wayne's real name. Mary Morrison, of course it is. What is it? Mar- uh, Marion Morrison. 
<laughs> I mean, how can you be a cowboy? <laughs> Boy, John Wayne's a better name for describing him, huh? It's like it's like Johnny Cash singing a boy named Sue. <laughs> boy named exactly. Sue, yeah. So, um, now, this, do, do you want to tell us what he said? <laughs> I'm dying to know what John Wayne really was like. I mean, was he like interested seriously in this formula? I read something about the what, the product you're making is directly uh, directed by his own personal notes. Correct. Um, as Ethan was was telling me the stories and the history, he explained how uh, Ethan had recently uh, sort of taken charge of the family business, which was essentially managing, uh, overseeing the John Wayne Cancer Foundation, which is one of the leading breast cancer and melanoma research institutes in the country, as well as uh, overseeing sort of the family business, was, which was the, you know, the management development of uh, the name, image, and likeness of John Wayne. Right. So, uh, which you know, obviously encountered, encapsulated you know, various licenses and what they did to try to uh, you know, move forward with the family business. Now, as he took the business over, he realized that there were these 20-some-odd large wooden vaults that have been in storage since 1979, which is the year that John Wayne passed. Mm-hmm. And what these were were essentially uh, most of his personal effects and contents of his home that were sort of collected, documented meticulously, and sealed by the executors. So it was very interesting. It's almost like an Indiana Jones. So Ethan realized that these 20-so-odd wooden vaults were in storage and um, had been undiscovered. So he quickly extracted all the vaults and started going through them and was shocked to find, you know, all the belongings from his home, uh, his clothing, a lot of his costumes. There was a lot of awards. The Academy Award for True Grit was in there. And also, two interesting vaults. One contained, uh, basically, his memoirs, handwritten notes, letters to everyone you can imagine that were meticulously documented and cataloged by uh, the two secretaries that John Wayne had on staff. So, as you can imagine, bankers' boxes upon bankers' boxes of these, you know, catalog built, so it was, it was basically a, a storybook and uh, a guide. Now, in addition to this, they found uh, his liquor collection, which essentially amounted to, you know, all of his personal liquor collection, what he drank on his boat, what he drank with his And included in that, Ethan discovered hand-blended bottles of whiskey, of bourbons, of tequilas, while he sort of combed through all the documentation, realized, and he recounted as a child, oh my God, this is one of the projects my father had been working on. He'd actually been cobbling together the story and the details to create his own whiskey and tequila. And being John Wayne, you could do almost anything and have access to the best craftsmen in the world. So I'm listening to this story thinking, you've got to be kidding me. You've got this factual documentation, uh, details. You've got original blended bottles sitting there. You mean they're actual bottles? Yep. And there weren't many of them, but so we looked at it all and we're like, wow, this is incredible. So, and you know, and as Ethan's describing his father to me, like, you know, I guess everybody knows the stage persona, but, you know, John Wayne to me really represented an a man of, a, of a, a complete integrity, um, authenticity, and I think he's clearly could be viewed as one of the most uh, authentic craftsmen and exacting craftsmen in American history, both at what he did in film, but he extrapolated that to other things he did in life, his personal projects, one of which was this creation of a spirit. Uh, he loved to fish. He loved being with his friends. He was an incredible American, and he really valued everybody the same as long as they were a hardworking, 
and honest. He didn't care where they're from, what they look like. And Ethan would tell the stories that he'd treat the stagehands no different than he'd treat the leading ladies on the set. As long as you're an honest man, and he told stories about how John Wayne would pick up the broom and show the stagehand how to sweep properly. <laughs> so he was the type of guy that was first on the set, last to leave, and whatever needs to get done, he would he would do. So I'm listening to this thinking, wow, you know, in, you know, in the world of, you know, sort of, um, I think, lack of authenticity, uh, lack of exactness, and, you know, brands being driven by more marketing, I was intrigued by this. So, you know, I set out and uh, to see if I could recreate, bring the recipe back to life and bring it to the public, which, which is how Duke Spirit started um, almost 10 years ago. Now, where is it actually made? It's made according to John's formula, but where, where is it actually distilled? We currently distill in Owensboro, Kentucky, so it's 100% in Kentucky. Oh, product. great! Okay, so um, so it's real, so it's real bourbon. It's real bourbon. Uh, you know, over the years, I've accumulated a very rare collection of old bourbon barrels from Kentucky that we use as the basis of the blend and recreated. And having reversed engineered the recipe of Asheville. You know, we've uh, we've been making it per recipe, and uh, our home is in Owensboro, Kentucky. Uh, it's one of the oldest distilleries in existence in Kentucky. It's pre-prohibition. Um, I work hand-in-hand with the master distiller there to to do this, and I oversee all the blending uh, and so on and so forth. And in the last uh, year, we've recently come to market with what I call the premier line, which is uh, a three three products. One of which is the 88 proof Kentucky Straight Bourbon. It's a five to seven year blend. Um, and coming from the wine industry, I had access to some very exquisite French oak wine barrels uh, that I used to do finishing of some of our older expressions. Uh, and I pulled what I believe to be the finest, best French oak barrels in the world that have had world-class California single vineyard Cabernet sitting in them. And, you know, there are a lot of products out there that do finishing, which essentially means you take a bourbon and you put it into some other type of barrel. Now, my viewpoint's always been, is why would I take a phenomenal 10-year-old Kentucky bourbon and put it in a subpar barrel that's had a subpar product sitting in it? So I've tried very meticulously to use every component that is, top-notch, world-class, and we produce what we call the Ground Crew Founders line of Duke as well, which is a much higher-end Kentucky bourbon and Kentucky rye that we it finishes extra time in our French oak wine barrels. So it's a very exquisite, higher-end product um, that, I, that I believe, you know, again, I, I, I would I'd be very confident to taste any of the products in the product line against any of the products out there, but we took great care and attention to make sure that we did this in the right place. We did this where we believe bourbon should be made, which is Kentucky. We worked with the right people. And did and you really use words that I thought one of the requirements to be called this uh, was that the oak barrels had to be new? Well, correct, yes. The, the bourbon is made in oak barrels. However, and so the 88-proof bourbon, it ages all in oak barrels. So does the 10-year-old. Okay, but if you take a 10-year-old and put it into a wine barrel, it's still a Kentucky bourbon. You just can't say it's any older than 10 years. The fact that it's all Kentucky straight bourbon, it's all made per law and per all the requirements of bourbon. So there could be anything more Kentucky about this. Even though it's not in a new barrel? Yeah. I didn't know that. You learn something new every day. Um, so anyhow, go ahead. Next, next phase of the story is you, you used prime everything, and uh, when I started talking to you, you said so much has been happening, so much is going on. You're getting all this recognition. What exactly has been going on with Duke Spirit? Well, obviously, as we've come into the market with the the new releases, uh, we've gotten a lot of press and a lot of excitement around it. Um, and, um, so that, that's happened. Uh, you know, 
we've really been able to now um, expose people to the product. Um, it, it's a limited production, but you know we have national distribution, which is a big thing, and as well, um, you know we're very excited because we're supporting an incredible group of women uh, that are a very successful country music band. Uh, they're called Runaway June, and they're amazing, empowered, talented women uh, doing something they believe in. And one of the lead singers is Jennifer Wayne, John Wayne's granddaughter. So that's, they work with us amazing. to help promote the great story of the Duke and the bourbon. They're currently on tour with Carrie Underwood. So we're supporting them. Uh, we've actually got an incredible branding on their tour bus. And they're rolling around the country touring. And we're supporting them, getting awareness for them, for the brand. Uh, and that's a, you know, a really big, big thing for us right now. And, uh, also what we work with, and a lot of it's my background in wine and culinary, we're starting to work with some incredible chefs to, um, you know, really, uh, you know, help elevate and expand the reach of bourbon in the culinary space. So it's not just for barbecue, um, and, uh, working a lot with different fish and things like that. So, you know, we have a very unique skill set, and I think it enables us to do some special things uh, and then be creative. And obviously, I think, uh, you know, as the drinkers of America evolve, people are very knowledgeable. Uh, they demand great taste, demand great value, but they also look at, you know, the authenticity and the story behind the product. So, um, you know, we're very, very particular on what we do, how we do it, who we do it with, and to make sure that there isn't an element of things that, that ha- may happen could be potentially inconsistent with the brand or the quality of the product or the man we're trying to represent. Uh, again, you know, it's, it's the bourbon is something that stands on its own regardless of the association with John Wayne, and I want people to, to look at it that way and really... We represent and honor John Wayne as being one of the ultimate craftsmen in America. And we've been fortunate enough to take his 1962 recipe and bring it forward. So, you know, we don't sort of market it as a John Wayne brand per se, but, you know, we've been fortunate enough to be um, made privy to this great recipe that modern-day craftsmen uh, have picked up and are bringing it to the public. No, he he would be the ultimate. You got to get a glass. I would think so. No, you got to get a glass in the hands of the statue at the Orange County Airport. (laughs) Exactly. Well, you know, we've. uh, I I used to see. I used to see him almost every week. (laughs) You know, obviously, everyone's concerned about the millennials, the super millennials, and the reality is, you know, uh, the greatest probably whiskey drinker and most spirits drinker now in America are between the ages of twenty-five and forty. So what we've really tried to do is bring the John, the key characteristics of John Wayne forward in life. Uh, people may not know, a lot of people may not know who John Wayne is, but I believe that a lot of people want to embody what the man was. You know, like, I think a lot of people, if they knew who John Wayne or Steve McQueen were, would say, wow, we'd like to be like that guy. So, you know, in our, in our sort of motto for our company and our brand is we're made from character, and that's sort of the, the pillar of everything we do. Okay, but the main purpose of this Duke Spirits is actually the business of end of, of making um, a good spirits, right? Absolutely. Now, absolutely. How do, I don't quite understand how this girl band fits in. Well, you know, obviously it helps us get notoriety and exposure on the product. Um, you know, it's always a challenge in the industry because we're a small company and we don't have big marketing budgets. At the end of the day, we want to get people to we want people to know about what we do. And working with the band, it's a great way to get exposure, and it's a great way to reach at that category of drinker. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of brands have ambassadors and this and that uh, campaigns, but I just thought it was very organic the fact that John Wayne's granddaughter is in the band, and they're big supporters of what we do, and vice versa. And uh, it just spreads the message of hard work, integrity, and, uh, you know, and also having fun with your friends. Now, the, the, the only thing I'm worried about is you, the, the pitch that was presented to us, this feature Duke on our program, 
said, do you have to have Duke's bourbon for f- the 4th of July? <laughs> I, I'm, well, I'm worried that my bottle won't last till the 4th of July. <laughs> I knew he was going to say that. Well, send me an email. We'll have to get you another bottle. You know, I don't think I even it. got to take I got to taste it, but I don't think I had any more after I tasted it at all. Well, I mean, Peter is really adopted. But it, it's, and it's, he is but a, it's but it's a man's bourbon, you understand? You can't have <laughs> g- you can't have girls drinking John Wayne's bourbon. <laughs> well, you right? know, you know, you know it's interesting, you know, I've been through a lot of interesting uh exploration into who's drinking bourbon, what they're like, and a lot of women are drinking bourbon now and they want to drink for the most part of man's bourbon. They're they're not looking for umbrellas in their drinks or um, oh I yeah, think. no. I mean, bourbon. I mean, bourbon is really coming into its own again. I mean, it's not like it, it's not been before. And I, I really, uh, when when I was uh, you know old enough to drink, I drank bourbon, and I never switched to a scotch until I went to England, and the price difference was so high that I started drinking scotch. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, but uh, fine bourbon is certainly on everybody's uh, uh, in everybody's glass today. I think pretty much. And I also believe that the classic cocktails will make your resurgence. You know, the old fashioned Manhattan. Yeah, you said therapy. this recipes. Now, were these recipes part of the notes in the, uh, in, the in, in the um, archive? No, it doesn't sound like it. Roughneck. No, gelato. no, no. And I'll tell you something. Um, what was very about the bourbon we found, and I think it's reflected in what we make today, is the incredible smoothness and balance, and I'll tell you why. Ethan Wayne describes the circumstances in which his father drank bourbon. They'd be sitting by a campfire in Mexico, and they'd be drinking it neat out of tin cups. That's it. That's it. I I knew it. John Wayne, he'd be in the White House with President Reagan, or, or whomever, drinking it out of fine crystal with a piece of glass rock in it. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, they'd be on their boat up in Alaska, and John Wayne would be drinking with his friends and instruct his son, who was a young boy, and his friends, hey, go out in the little dinghy, row out to the iceberg, chop off some ice, and bring it back. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so you can imagine, in the middle of the night, these kids, and, you know, they, these are kids that, you know, Ethan, when he went to Mexico, his father would say, here's your horse, here's your knife, here's this, here's the water, be back by sundown. <laughs> well, you have great a, stories here, Chris. And um, I, have a, I, have a, I have a small dabbling of these stories, which are incredible. And, you know, when we first took the product out years ago, the original offering, he um, traveled with me many places in America and heard them and heard them. And what was incredible which helped me understand the character of the man were so many people that would just show up and tell the story of how John Wayne touched their lives. And uh, I haven't heard one negative thing. Um, And, you know, so, again, we really try to bring those character traits forward in time uh, to class, integrity, and, uh, you know, strength. You know, being a good American, regardless of where you're from, what you look like. Yeah. it's all about being a good American, and you know people saw him as a as a very staunch Republican. But you know what? When Jimmy Carter won the election, John Wayne offered his hand and said, "Whatever you need, I'm an American. I'm here." So yeah. he wasn't he wasn't skewed to the point where you know he wouldn't support. If it was American, he'd support. And if you worked hard, he'd support you. So this is you know. But he loved the final spider things in life. The man drank very well. Yeah. You know, he drank the best Bordeaux, the best California wines, the best ports, and. I guess you, know, you, you had that money, huh? He didn't fool around when he came to that, and, and I saw, I've seen those bottles. Well, anyhow, I, I have gotten a great kick out of this whole thing, uh, Chris. Are you sure you're not Canadian? I am Canadian. Oh, okay. I got it. <laughs> it's out. That gave you away. <laughs> I was born and raised in Toronto, played hockey my whole life. I left Canada a long time ago and lived in different places around the world, and yeah, the weather so, in South Florida is a lot different from Toronto. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, Toronto's gotten a lot warmer. I don't know what the weather pattern's been up in Pennsylvania, but as I recall, you know, uh, it's, uh, it's really involved an incredible city up there. Yeah, 
I love Toronto, by the way. We, we need all we need all the bourbon we can get to keep the blood flowing through our veins. <laughs> well, listen, Chris, this has been a real pleasure, and uh, I wish you much much in well continued success, right? Success. Again, thank you so so much. I appreciate your interest, the time, and uh, if you have any further questions or anything, please email me or definitely would like to send you some more bottles for July 4th, so uh, let me know and I'll get it done. Thank you so much. <laughs> Chris, okay, thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. So you never knew. You never knew the story. No, but now you, I do. Now, now you do know the story, and right after the break, we'll have another story. Uh, that is equally bewildering. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Welcome back, and moving right along, we enter into a, another world, uh, actually. It's another world of spiritus liquors, one, one that is, uh, shall, we, shall we say, un- unusual geographically, and, but the, the idea came from something that is really quite well known, because everybody loves Baileys, and a lot of people like Brandy Alexander's, and the, a large number of people in the Indian subcontinent like a, a similar thing to drink. And, and, and we found it, just in case you need to know about it. You're not saying anything. Well, you're talking. Why don't oh, you okay. Say well, you, you usually have something to say. Anyway, the, the most um, most amazing thing about this particular beverage coming up is the bottles are absolutely the most elegant bottles you've ever seen in your whole well, life. I don't even know how they can afford to produce them. They're so gorgeous. Well, they're, well, Wonderful gifts, listeners. Yeah, there's a, there's a story coming up right here. What a treat for the eyes and the taste buds uh, to receive this gift box of House of Solomon's product. We're going to be talking to Monica Badlani, and you're going to tell us, Monica, what is this House of Solomon's? Hi, Anne. Hi, Peter. Um, thank you so much for the invite to join today. Um, the House of Solomon's is... It's an interesting um, idea. The, the thought here is to create uh, the world's first global line of Indian-inspired liqueurs. Um, and not only to do that, but sort of really to create liqueurs that are just very premium in terms of quality and mouthfeel and experience for the consumers. And so the House of Sonoris is essentially that, that, that line come to life. Um, and so we have two flavors in the market right now. I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but, yeah, what you got in that gift basket was um, Somers chai uh, and Somers mango, along with some recipes. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't really as- associate India with liqueurs. Mm-hmm. That is exactly correct. And, and that's and the reason for that is that there is really nothing uh, from that region. Um, and so... You know, it's quite fun if you think about um, all the different alcohols out there, the craft spirits um, and different, um, you know, offerings that are out there now. Um, people are exposed to different uh, cuisines and cultures through that. And since there's nothing for India, we wanted to sort of create something for the world. And we are based in the U.S., so we are sort of launching it in the U.S. first. Um, and then we're, the idea is to take it globally over time. Uh, how, how, how did you yourself get to, get to the U.S.? So I um, I was actually born in India, but um, when I was quite young, about two years old, my parents came to the U.S. Oh, and, okay, uh, all right. Yes, yes. It's so, a, to uh, West Chicago, you're it's the Midwest. You're in Chicago. Uh, that's correct. With a couple of other pit stops along the way, but uh, I'm in Chicago. Um, the founders of Somers, it's a husband and wife couple named P.K. and Swathi Krug. Uh, they're also in Chicago, um, and they um, came to the U.S. BK came to the U.S. Uh, to do his master's degree, um, and so had a very strong tie, you know, with the U.S. and in India. 
Um, and Swathi, his wife, came over about uh, 15 years ago as well. And this this product wins all kinds of awards, right? <laughs> yes, yes, it does. And why um, do you think that is? I mean, is it because it's so unique? Yeah, I think, you know, when when PK and Swathi, um, so I joined the team right before we launched, but what had happened was the prior four years, they had sort of explored this this opportunity. And really, the idea came from um, PK was on a business flight coming back from uh, India to the U.S., got this really lovely Indian meal, and then got an Indian dessert. And oftentimes he would drink cream liqueur, you know, after after the, the meal. Uh-huh. And so he got Bailey's. And he tasted yeah, well, that's it. Yeah, we it, thought of immediately, yeah. Yes, yes. He tasted it, and he thought, wow, these flavors don't really go well with this specific Indian meal. And then he looked at this lovely Indian dessert. Um, have you guys had Ras Malai? It's a, no. a cardamom, saffron, yeah. So he, he sort of said, well, wow, what if this was, you know, the cream liqueur I was drinking? He came back home. Interesting, his interesting. Wife, yeah, his wife, Swati, is an amazing, amazing cook. And they started experimenting literally in their kitchen mm-hmm. um, with speakers and test tubes and little droppers and, uh. you know, created this thing. And what they were very focused on at the beginning was the quality of the liquid, right? So they wanted to create not only Indian flavors, um, but also something that people would really sort of enjoy um, uh, over and over again, but also really feel good about. So gluten-free, there's no artificial flavors in there at all. Um, And so I think it's because of our focus on quality that we're getting a lot of the awards. Um, But of course, the uniqueness, there's really nothing on the market that has these flavors. Um, So I think that's that's why it's, it's getting a lot of attention, yeah, which is nice. <laughs> and there's nothing in this category that's native to India at all. I mean, I associate India with king kingfisher beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, not too long ago, four or five years ago, we were, we were at a fine uh, Indian owned hotel oh, that in wine, London yeah. called, called, I think it was the Taj Chain. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the direct, director of food and beverage for the hotel chain we, we we had met earlier, and so he, he he fed us and drank us. But he said, "I want to serve you an, an Indian wine to go with this," and he he served a Syrah based wine, which is really good, yeah. which is really quite delicious. Uh-huh. And so so think, things are things are happening with alcoholic beverages in India, albeit perhaps slowly. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, think about that. Before Sula, there really wasn't. Uh, a wine brand that was known outside of India. Um, wine itself as a category wasn't really known that well inside of India. Um, and so you really had you know, hard spirits and, and beer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, Sula really sort of cracked open the wine category. And now you can go and, you know, visit wineries uh, in, in India. And that's all about just 20 years old, if you can imagine. So we mm-hmm. want to do the same thing for the liqueur space. <laughs> that's the, the last untapped category is, is cordials and liqueurs. And so we want to essentially, you know, create that and create, put India on the map in terms of liqueurs, especially because it's known for flavors and spices. Oh, yes. Now, now without giving away perhaps some trade secrets, <laughs> I, mean, I, I think we, we know, for example, that Bailey's Irish cream, there, there is an ingredient which spikes it, which is Irish whiskey. That's correct. And, yep. uh, and the, and the, the, the good old, what do they, what do they call that? Irish cream. The thing that served oh, yeah. as a dessert one that was invented in San Francisco. Yeah, I don't remember. Irish oh, coffee. Sure. Irish, Irish coffee. coffee. Oh, yeah, coffee. of course, Irish coffee. I yes, know yes. That. And, uh, and Irish coffee, again, had, had the same set of composition. There's also a cocktail based on on uh, cognac. What's that one called? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, you're, <laughs> you're the drinking brand, Brandy Alexander. Um, Brandy Alexander, yes, my mother did like those. Very, very dangerous. Very dangerous. Yeah, they taste too good. That's the that's the danger with with these cream liqueurs. That's right. <laughs> you forget. You know, it just tastes so good. You just don't control yourself. Right. Back to the question I was going to ask: Is is there a, a liqueur that, if you like, spikes the somers? Yeah, so there I is, think okay. uh, what you're asking is sort of the, the, what, what's in Somerus, right? It's, the, it's a rum-based liqueur. Rum, okay. okay um, very good. Yeah, so we use rum. And, um, you know, you also mentioned uh, Irish coffee. You know, I, I think that we all know that creams 
any cream liqueur tastes amazing in, in coffee. Um, but we think that ours also tastes really lovely in black tea. So oh, yes, that take, would be good. Yes, yes. So, you know, if you take just a regular black, black tea and you want to make an alcoholic chai, all you got to do is add farmer's chai because it's got the spices, it's got the creamer, and it's got the sweetener already, already baked in for you. <laughs> yeah, well, you, your two flavors are chai and mango that you have so far. And, and I guess That's you, right. you, assess, you, you associate the mango with, with tiki-type drinks. Yes. And, and, margar- yeah, and margaritas, maybe? Margaritas? Yes. yes. Mango yeah, and margaritas? Well, no. Mm-hmm. No. Summerus. Oh, Summerus right. mango. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, I, I think, see what you mean. I think I think that's what I had in mind. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm not, really, not really sure anymore. Well, you know, the, yeah. the, it's, it, it's, you can tell right away um, what to expect just by the packaging. In fact, I, <laughs> I was so astounded by the packaging of the bottles oh, and, and the bottles. I mean, that has to be really expensive, huh? Well, we wanted to reflect the quality of the liquid, right? So we took this idea of from an ancient decanter, and that's what the bottles are based after. Okay. That, that it's a very elegant um, look. So, you know, it's nice because you can sort of um, can imagine on your on your bar shelves, but you can also give it as a gift. It's already wrapped up for you in the gold and silver bottle. So. Yeah, and then in the purple satin, that was the final mm. touch. <laughs> yeah, a kingly drink, yes. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Um, Peter, back to your question real quick. So, yeah, we that's exactly right. So, we, you know, we use the the, um, the mango in a lot of tropical-type drinks, tiki drinks for sure. And then um, I love it actually with just with pineapple coconut water. So, if you want just a really refreshing afternoon pina colada-type drink, just uh, just have it with some of that. There you go, yeah. It's quite yeah, good. Yeah. Right. And then we have, you know, we've got a lot of recipes on our website. We've got a lot of people experimenting for us, and then we've also created some of our own as well, so... And, We're and hearing what people have to do, what, what they do with the products. So, <laughs> and, and the website is summers.com. Uh, that's correct. Yep, summers.com. Yeah, I'm going to write that down just so we can no, forget no, that. No, th- this is this is all pretty new, but but I'm sure you have other things in the pipeline. Is there anything you can tell us about that's not a trade secret? <laughs> well, what I can say is that you know we are trying to. Uh, create for the category of the course for India. So there are things in the pipeline. And um, if you um, um, think about just what India is known for, I can't disclose them just yet, um, but we will be disclosing them very soon, potentially for the holidays um, or early next year on our website and um, on our um, social media pages. But, um, you know, if you just think about what other ideas, what other, what other flavors come from India, you would get it. Oh, the, so, the, the flavors. Yeah, right. I mean, there's so many <laughs> flavors of India. Yes, I mean, it's, yes. It's really heady stuff. Um, <laughs> now, what kind of reception, I mean, I know you're winning awards, but what kind of reception are you getting from um, drinkers? Um, uh-huh. and, and I'd be interested in, like, by type, like, uh, are the Indian drinkers welcoming this or uh, non-Indian Westerners welcoming it? Yeah. Well, yeah, so the awards definitely help. You know, so the Summer's Chai is got a 94-point rating from Wine Enthusiasts, and it's a double gold from San Fran. And what's helpful there is that then people start to write about us, and we start to learn um, who's interested in writing about us, who's interested in, in carrying us, what kinds of stores, right? So we're available, like, for Chicago and the Vinnies. Um, around the country, we're available in some of the bigger stores as well. Um, and then when we do tastings at those stores, we get to really meet our consumer. Um, and it's quite fun because um, the consumer is really sort of um, a variety of age ranges and ethnicities, um, you know, in the U.S., it's about a 1%, like, Indian population. It's quite small. Mm-hmm. Um, those guys are definitely our brand ambassadors. So, you know, people who are, you know, already very familiar with these flavor profiles, um, we wanted to make it truly unique and, 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 and genuine for them as well to be able to sort of share. Um, and then, you know, we have our, our business is, is mostly non-Indians in the U.S. just because I think what we do is we attract both the current cream liquor drinkers and then because of the quality, it's also a little bit lighter, I think, than other creams. We are really are getting brand new cream liqueur drinkers that, that don't really normally consume cream. Um, and so that's a lot of fun. So we're getting a little bit, um, I would say, you know, sort of um, even down to people in their early 20s, maybe more sort of, mid, you know, early, early 20s up to 
uh, the typical um, cream liqueur drinkers are a little bit older um, normally, but we don't find that. So now, it's quite fun. Now, you, yeah. you ran something by really quickly there that pe- people are not associated with the trade, perhaps didn't even notice, but you said San Fran and double gold. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> for, for, yes. uh, for our listeners who know, know them, that must be a rating. Quickly explain, right. so quickly explain what yeah. they are. Oh, thank you, Peter. Um, both, actually, Stormers Chai and Stormers Mango have gotten um, this award from the San Fran International Spirits Competition, and the highest level award there is, is double gold. Um, they've also received best cream and dairy liqueur uh, from them as well. So I think that it's quite fun to see that kind of um, reception from the trade. Um, and so, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we've gotten a few other awards as well, and I think uh, right now Summer's Chai stands as the most awarded cream in the corner of the world. Really? Which is quite fun. Uh-huh. Yeah, That's a we're, lot. we're still relatively new. That's <laughs> so, incredible, actually. Monica, yeah. I, th- I think you're onto a good thing. I don't think this is the last <laughs> time. We're, I don't think this is the last time we're going to talk to you. Right. You know, Monica, one more thing. Did you pay attention to the National Spelling Bee? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Who dominated the National Spelling Bee? Oh, my goodness. Yes. And I, I'm actually, you know, very uh, amazed by these kids that they were, they ran out of words this year, right? There were eight winners. Eight. <laughs> yes. And they were, I, think, I mean, Indians have dominated that now for right. <laughs> several, right. more than several years in the past. Yeah. And the, the words, I'll tell you, I said to Peter, <laughs> what's, and I named one of these words. Not only would I not have, I had no idea what it meant. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I'm, I'm quite amazed by. Yeah, especially there. the era of spell check, huh? Okay, so, 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 <laughs> That's so, right. so, Summers is the stuff, listeners. If you're looking for something enti- entirely new and different, and, and you, this is you, a good place for you it. You need to say what the name means, just so it will stick in oh, people's right, right, head. Right. Oh, that's right. The name is Nectar of the Gods. It's an ancient Sanskrit word, about 2,000 years old. And it's quite fun. It's in a lot of literature and stuff. And, and we find that people who know what that word means are oftentimes, well, you know, so much has come to life, I need to try it. So it's quite fun to, to get the reception to that word as well. Wonderful. Well, you've been a delight also, Monica. And uh, I, I hope we hear from you again. And much success with your ongoing developing company and line of products. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Ann and Peter. And uh, absolutely, as we come up with new things, we'll let you know for sure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Monica. Uh, Bye-bye. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. And for our final segment, um, we bring to you Derek Brown with his work on the history of the cocktail. Not such a bad history or historical um, theme to investigate as he has done. And guess what the name of his company is? It's called the Drink Company. Drink Company. Drink, the Drink Company. (laughs) The the title of his book is? Oh, well, we're going to repeat that. Spirits, sugar, Water and bitters. I like all the, bitters the, all the ingredients of the modern cocktail and uh, the, the story of how to make it, what its history is, all kinds of fascinating inside information that will equip you with something to do while you're sitting there with a drink in your hand. We've been getting quite a lot of booze and cocktail books lately, so I guess it's a, a hot item of, um, con- well, um, I guess of pastime as well as, <laughs> but in a serious vein, like history of and, and so forth. Uh, we have a, a really special one, though, to talk, we're going to be talking to Derek Brown today, who wrote Spirits, Sugar, Water, Bitters, how the cocktail conquered the world, and indeed it did, did it not? Did what? It did not? <laughs> it did. Did. It did. Yeah, it did. It sure did. You know, yeah, I, 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 I must say that Rizzoli, though, uh, their, their uh, proofreader and editor must have really excellent eyesight because this print is very small in this book. 
Well, we tried to get a lot in, but I agree with you. It's a little tiny. Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> the recipe uh, uh, pen is a little bigger. There, yes, there, there are there are some parts where you you clearly want people to be able to read, so the print gets a lot bigger. But but I I I sat challenged and I I had difficulty with it too. You know, you you bring out some. I thought because we have all these books and we've done all these interviews that that I knew a lot about cocktails and the history of cocktails, um, and yet you know I never knew where the word cocktail came from. But you tell us. Yeah, that's a, quite a quite a mystery, um, and it still remains to some degree of a mystery. But there are some good theories out there, and probably the number one person who has done the research is David Wondrich, but um, of course, we've interviewed him too. Figuring out where the cocktail uh, comes from, it actually uh, ends up coming from a horse's rear end, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's it's actually named after the the glass that that used to be poured, that used to be poured in, right? It used to be what? It's, it's it's named after the little egg cup thing that they used to serve cocktails in? No, no, no. Yeah, that was one theory. There was one theory oh, that okay. it was, uh, it was um, uh, after an egg cup, which is also called a coquetier um, in French. That, ter- that turns out to be, there's no evidence of that. That's just kind of conjecture. Oh, okay, but all right. It, it literally, and I, I know it sounded like I was like a joke, but it literally has to do with um, using ginger to um, essentially get a horse to be more peppy. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately, the insertion point is the rear end. Um, <laughs> so so apparently, this was uh, called cocktail, cocktailing a horse. Oh, you can imagine it's, it's cocktail, it's tail actually cocked um, as being more energetic. This is when somebody would try to sell a horse uh-huh. or uh, try to show it off. So... <laughs> Well, that's one theory. That's one theory. It sounds, sounds, a little, sounds a little bit like Hobson's Choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, you know about Hobson's Choice. Oh no, no, explain to me. Well, it, it, it turns out Mr. Hobson owned a livery stable in Cambridge, where I, where I went to school, and and he used to rent out horses, but mm-hmm. he dis, he discovered that people were choosing the f- faster horses. And the ones that weren't so fast never got taken out for a ride, so they got big and fat. Oh yeah. So, so he introduced this concept called Hobson's Choice. You got the next horse up, <laughs> whether 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 it was its turn or not. You didn't get to uh-huh. choose. <laughs> so, so, they, so there you go. There's a, there's a nice bit of useless information for you. Yeah. Well, there's lots of of information around the subject, and I mean, you did a thoroughly scholarly research. Now, what was the project that all this, that, uh, you were appointed what, and your background, you're, you you have a very official sounding title and you came out of a, a project? Oh, yeah, I had, I'm, so essentially I um, had worked with the National Archives Foundation on creating a series called the History of the Cocktail Series alongside an exhibit they had at the National Archives called the Spirit of the Republic. And um, they gave me the title of Chief Spirit Advisor. <laughs> now, I thought they had, like, these incredible um, treasure um, sort of vaults full of old alcohol. Turns <laughs> they didn't have any. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I, I took the job anyway, and, and we set up a series called The History of the Cocktail, um, and we brought, uh, in 10 different seminars, we brought 30 experts from throughout the country to come speak about the history of the cocktail. And it was such an amazing um, and, and one-of-a-kind um, seminar series. I mean, it just uh, it involved people like Dale DeGroff, Dave Wondrich, Julie Reiner, um, experts on, um, you know, bartending, on cocktails and cocktail history, um, some writers as well, and... Um, Somebody asked me, I think it was around the ninth seminar, somebody asked me, like, oh, are you recording this? He said you didn't. Oh. I didn't. So um, so this is my attempt, uh, not a faithful retelling, but the best attempt to kind of conjure up all the information that we um, 
that we talked about. And so, um, and it's one thing I love about the book is that you know there's so many great cocktail books out there. And right now, like, like you said, there's so, there's like a plethora of cocktail books. Um, this is the only one that really tells the whole story, um, and that is one of the things I'm, I'm very proud of. That it gets to kind of co- cover the cocktail from before the cocktail are all the all the way to what I now call the platinum age. Is this what it is? The platinum age? I'll be darned. Um, now, it's ancient, isn't it? Uh, booze, cocktails. Mm-hmm. It is indeed. You know that in the in the before the cocktail preface, which initially started out as a chapter, um, but uh, ended up being a preface because we wanted to start in America. But um, we were. I was talking to Patrick McGovern, who's um, an incredible. Um, uh, uh, archaeologist, uh, anthropologist. He's actually technically a biomolecular archaeologist. Wow. And he had discovered the earliest chemically authenticated alcohol. And when I was talking to him, we were talking about this alcohol from Jiahu, China, some 9,000 years ago. And I asked him, like, is it a mixed drink? Because it appears to be that. And he said, yes. So, uh, you know, our experience with mixing drinks and mixing things together is very ancient. Um, obviously, there's even stuff that existed way before that. That's just the one that they can chemically authenticate because it has pottery. You know, before, before 10,000 B.C., they didn't really have pottery. So um, that was, you know, that got me thinking about how the cocktail is just one uh, sort of, um, I guess, uh, marker along this, long experience, human experience of mixing drinks, but it's an important one, obviously, to me, and hopefully to a lot of other people, um, and, uh, you know, that's what I try to capture in my book, the, the cocktail, um, specifically Yeah, I mean, it how, directs a lot of, of history, period. Yeah, exactly, and, and I think it's, it's, it's wonderful to be able to tell the history um, of us through the cocktail, mm-hmm. um, because it's been an important who we are. Oh well, there's there's a branch of history called social history, and this this is a foundation piece of social history because mm-hmm. because because the reason people there's a definitive reason why people did what they did. That's right. So people people made beer because the water was too disgusting to drink. That's right. And 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 they made land they made landfall if they were running out. Yeah. <laughs> I, li- I liked her Pilgrim Father's story. The P- Pilgrim Fathers, I guess, landed where they landed because they were running out of beer. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Good reason to land, I guess. This, is, know, it. I, this is all very important. <laughs> and, it, you know, in, and it's so fun to, to pull out these little stories and they tell us so much about who we are. But one of my favorite chapters is the founding drinkers. Um, and just talking about okay, I like that, how, too. Yeah, how important it all was to the founding of our republic. I mean, when you really think about uh, people you know, trying to wage uh, a revolution against the greatest superpower of the time, um, they had to be drinking something, and they, <laughs> it turns out they were. They were drinking punch. Well, now the, so, now the uh, navy was the navy guys were drinking were, were drinking too. They were they were drinking rum, and the army guys were drinking gin. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah it's it's. Strength, it, I guess. It's funny, the, the, my, my local, everybody in England, I guess not everybody now, because dr- drinking in, in pubs is, is becoming less and less of a sport because of the crackdown on, on driving under the influence. Yeah. But, but my, well, local, my local was the Washington Inn in, in Primrose Hill in, mm-hmm. in London, and the feature was that all around the public bar, was was a, a, an inventory of all the liquor that was provided by George Washington to the first electoral yeah. college, <laughs> and, and believe me, there was a lot. Yeah, I mean, I've read that. Um, I whatever don't, you call it, I don't know. I don't know that they'd be able to stand up. <laughs> Never mind, vote. Yeah, well, you yeah know, that's right. Derek, you were starting to tell us your favorite stories from that founding father drinkers. Thing in that chapter. What were some of the others you you were telling us? Oh, some of my other um, chapters, stories from the chapters. No, the the founding the fathers drinkers chapter. You well, started. To tell I us love that about. George Washington had the largest rye distillery at the time. Yeah. You know, 
Um, I, I think that's a, a fact that most most people don't know. You know, they know probably some fictitious story about him uh, cutting down a cherry tree, um, but the the reality of it is that he had this um, rye whiskey distillery that, which is amazing. You can go visit in Virginia; they have a recreation of it. Right, the right. Tour, who is the um, sort of on-premise archaeologist there, um, is actually runs it, and they make spirits out of it so that there is that distillery from the past, and it's a watch day, and it's built on the exact same footprint with the exact same materials that were used. This is Mount, Mount Vernon, right? Yeah, that's right. So okay. people, and people will go to Mount Vernon, they might not even go to the distillery because it's slightly um, separate from the location. Um, it's very close, but it's not on the same pro- exact property. Um, now but let, that's exactly where I went to first. No, <laughs> now let's, to let's let's move on to the competition for the story as to who really invented the cocktail. For, for, first of all, yeah. you, first of all, you can get rid of my favorite for that, Doctor Pachot, because he he wasn't born he wasn't born early enough to be involved. Mm-hmm. You, you said he would have been three years old. When when Peugeot's bitters were first put into a, an assembly of liquor, so who did it first? If it wasn't him, we don't know. We don't. You oh know, my. some genius came up with the cocktail, and what's amazing is that it's outlived them um, and come to be, I think, uh, one of America's greatest exports. But um, you know, the at least we know the first time it's been mentioned in print was in eighteen oh three, and the first time it was defined in print was in eighteen oh six. Um, in each case, we got a little picture of what the cocktail was at the time. Uh, I imagine if it was mentioned in 1803 that it was probably invented in the late 18th century or very, very early 19th. But the the first mention is in the Farmer's Almanac in which it talks about it being a morning drink. <laughs> Get so you started, it's huh? Justification to drink the cocktail in the morning. It can go back a few hundred years. Well, the, the, this is this is why grappa was invented. We we're told <laughs> to, yeah. to, 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 to give the men um, to give the men a charge the def- before he went out the into the field. That happens in 1806. That's the very title of my book: Spirit, Sugar, Water, Bitters. That that appears in the Columbian Balance and uh, uh, Repository, um, a, a paper from upstate New York. Um, that is talking about uh, an election. Um, and the cocktail is one of the things that the candidate gives out um, to try to get people to vote for him. Um, so, you know, I want—I wish we could bring that back. I, <laughs> with all these, like, uh, you know, ridiculous candidates on, on both sides. I'm not taking sides. But um, at least if they bought us cocktails, <laughs> we could yeah. stomach it a little bit. Yeah, yeah, Instead, yeah. what they do, they used to do, is they close the bars, at least in Pennsylvania, they close the bars on election day, it, yeah, I, oh, it, really? it just dawned on me what Trump's problem is. He they doesn't close the bar on election day just no, so people wouldn't. I'm just, I'm bar. just saying. It just, it just dawned on me why Trump has a problem. He doesn't drink at all because he, he, he doesn't drink. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The story, Derek, that you may not know is um, I had to do research on Philadelphia. I don't know if you know Philadelphia, but it's loaded with fountains. Public yeah. fountains everywhere, and uh, um, it, anyhow, when I did research, I found out there was still um, one of the ladies was still alive from the uh, temperance group that they men would say that the reason they stopped in taverns bars was to get water for their horses. Right. So she put in all these fountains. So the group did. There were a bunch of ladies. From the Temperance Society, put in all these fountains, and there was took away that excuse. They could water their horses in the fountains. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, 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 it amazingly didn't work. I'm sure, yeah. but you know, in D.C., there's something called the Temperance Fountain, which is, I think, a very ugly um, fountain. To be honest, it has this sort of stork on top of it. Where's that? Fish that look as though they're copulating. Um, and <laughs> And out of their mouth is coming water, or was. Now it's just uh, dry, and there's a bunch of trash in the bottom of the monument. But, oh, dear. Um, but it was created by a guy named Dr. Cogswell, um, who, with the same basic idea, he said, if I could 
get men to drink, you know, water, clean, crisp, cold, cool water, then I could stop them from drinking whiskey. And I, I what a, what a um, unreasonable, crazy like, you know, idea. <laughs> yeah, what, what, a, what, a kid, what a killjoy he was. <laughs> Yeah. Now tell me why. Though. I guess he was used to inflicting pain. Why is America so pivotal, pivotal in um, designing and creating the cocktail? The America, I think, is um, responsible for the cocktail for a lot of reasons. But one of them is that you know before that, a lot of drinks were more communal, and I don't think people really think about that. But going back, you know, in time, we see punches. And punches. Uh, we see uh, cups, you know, we see even the way people might have drank beer um, was not exactly how we drink beer today. Um, and so, essentially, um, I think the cocktail is the individualized drink, and, and it, it relates to the punch, you know. if you A punch is made of, uh, you know, water or tea, um, citrus, um, spices, um, spirits, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So in that way, it's very close to a cocktail, but the, um, and bitters are really made out of spices and citrus too. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're almost like a cheat for that. Uh, so I think that this cocktail becomes a, just like America itself, very individualistic, very focused on the solitary drinker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's one of the reasons why it's so uniquely American. Interesting. Now, there was, there was a, there was a the, we're through it now, I guess, but there was a golden age where, where, yep. some, where some of the cocktails, which are the, the, the world's favorites today, like the dry martini and the Martinez, which I'd, nev- which I'd never heard of, mm-hmm. an old-fashioned and a, uh, my, my, my own personal favorite is a Sazerac. Yeah, he loves Sazerac. And then, uh, as long as you use good enough booze, and Manhattan is pretty much okay. Yep. But 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 you you saw some worrying things. I remember getting to the section where you talked about flavored vodkas, and boy, you really unloaded on that. Oh, them. I hate flavored vodkas. <laughs> you you really yeah. let the world have it there. Yeah, I'm a, I, I I I one of the things that I really wanted to get across in this book is I didn't want it to be a straight history. I, I, I wanted it to be me telling the story over a bar. You know, that's how I'm best at telling the story. And so with that comes my opinion, for better or worse. And one of them was really on just the scourge of flavored vodkas that um, have essentially attacked our palates. And, and, you know, there's crazy uh, flavored vodkas from, like, electricity-flavored vodka um, to... um, Ones that taste like bubble gum. Oh yeah, those are awful. awful. Yeah, and yeah, the, I've so, seen those chocolate drinks that you might as well eat them with a spoon rather than drink them. Yeah, I feel like the people who create them think they they must not care much for humanity. But, um, <laughs> but in the long run, I mean, I guess somebody buys them, and, and I try not to be too much of a snob. But but certainly in my book, I, I try to get across the things I like and don't like. Um, you know, one of the things that was an interesting kind of um, argument, not argument, just a discussion between the editors and me is um, about the, um, should we include recipes that I don't like? You know, and I did. You know, I, I included things like the screwdriver, which I think is just an awful drink. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I included it because I wanted, it's a piece of history. And that's really one of the cool things about um, this history versus other histories is that you can go taste it, that you can have the embodiment of that historical moment in a drink. Um, and that's why we have the recipes that we do there. And Golden Age is a great example. I mean, what a wonderful time that they were creating these cocktails. They're larger-than-life bartenders like Terry Thomas and, you know, um, and uh, uh, Harry Johnson and all these great bartenders. Um and they were making the drinks that we still drink today, and and you can go make those, which is so cool. Like the Martinez is a great example. Um, the Martinez is known among amongst uh, craft bartenders, I guess, but the general population and even people who are very interested in drinks don't know anything about it. 
but it's such a beautiful drink, and it really shows the lineage of the dry martini. That it, it you know, that the Martinez is based off the Manhattan. The martini is, in all likelihood, based off the Martinez. Huh. Um, and so, you can see the the lineage that they're connected, um, but you can also taste it, and you can taste it throughout the line. I suggest lining up all three of them. Now, are you, are you thinking of getting together with Amazon and, and doing a package which includes the book and a pair of reading glasses? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I probably should. I, I probably should have come out with a, a line of uh, Bartles at the same time, but uh, writing the book was enough. <laughs> right. Well, it, well, well, it's a wonderful piece of social history. The, w- the world owes you a big favor because... There can never be too many books about cocktails. <laughs> yeah, agreed. <laughs> so, so we thank we thank you so much for this contribution and for and for joining us today. And oh, uh, I hope our paths will cross sometime. Okay, I hope so. I hope over uh, Martinez, maybe. You never thank can you. tell. Okay, thank you all so much. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Jerry. What do we say? Or oh, bottoms up, or something like that. <laughs> Well, that wraps it pretty much for today, so join us again you, next you, week. Were you sleeping there, or did you have a cocktail in your hand? You or, usually well, say that. Oh, I usually say that, okay. Yes. Well, what do you usually say then, just so just so we'll, people will realize I it's say, the same old guy? So what's the story? I say bye-bye. And I say we'll see you again, same time, same place, next week. <laughs>